sometimes it feels like God has disappeared in our lives, and that is the name of this sermon series. We're in week three in a series on Job. If you're just joining us online, my name is Mike Lotz. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy Road Church, and we plan these messages out a year in advance, so by God's sovereignty and orchestrating, I believe fully that, that we were supposed to talk about a man named Job in this season as we all struggle to find a new normal with this coronavirus. States across our country are on lockdown. We live in a type of house arrest scenario, and I find myself preaching to a room of just, just a handful of people who are all keeping social distancing, and yet we're given this incredible tool, this technology to gather digitally, and so thank you for joining us, and thank you for praying and worshiping in this season. This too shall pass. It will not last forever. And some of you, that's really what you need to hear today in addition to the simple truth that God is near to those who are brokenhearted and heavy laden and stressed out. Even when it feels like he has disappeared, he has not, my friends. Last week, we talked about how to suffer well, and we said that as it relates to this man named Job, this ancient model of suffering, he suffered this way. He responded to suffering with worship. He was going through a mysterious type of suffering. He, he didn't know where it was coming from. He didn't feel like he deserved it. In fact, we're told early in the book of Job, Job didn't deserve it. He was an upright, godly person who always did the best he could to follow God and to honor God. He was really an outlier among his generation. And Satan has this interchange with God where God says, have you seen my servant Job? He loves me. He does what's right. And Satan essentially accuses Job of, of just loving God for God's stuff, for the perks and the privilege. And Satan says to God, if you took away all the blessings, all the protection and the health and the wealth and the wonderful kids that he has, if, if any of that or all of that was taken away, he would curse you to your face, God. And God mysteriously allows Satan, but limits Satan's power to essentially mess with Job. He calls Satan on this claim. And in the end, Job perseveres. He learns how to trust God at a deeper level. And so we've learned in this series in the first two weeks that God does not delight in suffering, but he does allow a limited amount of suffering in the world. And the particular type of suffering we're talking about in this series is best called mysterious suffering. It's the kind where we really know deep down that we're not at fault here. Something else is going on. This isn't the suffering that you get when you do something foolish or rebellious or sinful. It's the suffering that happens as a result of a broken, sin-shattered world. And God doesn't even waste that. He uses even that to draw us closer to him. As we explore this mysterious type of suffering, we look to Job and we learn how to respond to mysterious suffering with reverence and worship, but also with brutal gut-level honesty. And so last week we said there's nothing you can't say to God about your feelings that God can't handle. And Job pushes that limit. He does everything except call God evil. He says, God, it's not fair. Maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe for you, 
it's just really getting a bit much. You miss social gatherings. You wish you could be here in person at church. You're concerned about touching every surface and you're, and you're fearful about the toilet paper running out. To put it mildly, that's the least of some of our problems. For some of us, we're really going through it in this season and there is this collective sense of anxiety and stress. Do you know that you can talk to God about that? Do you know that God is like the best parent and he wants to hear your feelings? So we lay a foundation of reverence and then we come to God honestly and whatever happens, we said last week, we will keep God in the conversation today in the brief time that we have together. I'd like to say just a few things. First, the question that animates our discussion is this, how not to comfort people? How do you not comfort people? Because we all have people in our lives, in our sphere of influence, that really, if we think about it, we should be checking in. We should be calling on the phone or texting. We should be emailing. We should have a, a Zoom video chat with, and we should be saying, how are you really doing? Do you know the difference between how are you doing and how are you doing really? Some of us, deep down, we probably know we need to make that call and say, how are you doing really to someone we care deeply about? And when they answer, if they're a person in pain, we need to learn from the book of Job how to comfort them. And so this week, we're going to actually say, this is how you not comfort someone. This is how not to comfort someone, because Job's wife and three of his friends are almost a perfect case study in how not to comfort someone. They really do botch it. They get it wrong, and we can learn from that. And then next week, we're going to fill in the positive, and we're going to say, okay, how do we actually comfort people? How do we not just avoid doing the wrong thing, but how do we do the right thing? So over the next two weeks, we're going to practically equip ourselves to be agents of comfort to those in pain in our lives. And God will, I believe, use each one of us. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I'd like us to consider is this. Don't assume your family and friends suffering is a punishment for sins of commission. In the ancient church, there were two categories of sin, of doing the wrong thing. There were sins of commission, stuff that you do and you do wrong. And then there was this other category, sins of omission, things that you've left undone. So my kids could talk back to me, and that would be a sin of commission. They committed a rebellious, disrespectful act, I suppose. And then there would be the problem of not making their bed. We're trying to train them how to make their bed. If the bed just continues not to be made after it's slept in, that would be a sin of omission, something they've left undone that they're supposed to do. The first thing we need to keep in mind from the book of Job when it comes to how not to comfort someone is we need to not assume at the onset that the person we're trying to comfort, the person that is in pain, is suffering as a result of punishment for sins that they have done. Now, it may be the case that some of us are called to comfort other people for things that they have done wrong and they're experiencing the consequences, but don't assume that and don't go there so quickly. Job's wife is perhaps the worst example of this, and you have to cut her some slack. She has watched all of her children die in a tragic accident and all of the wealth that her and Job have accumulated be wiped out overnight. 
And here we read in Job 2, 9 through 10, Job's wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Wow. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Translation for the 21st century reader. Job's wife is essentially saying, this God stuff, it's all a joke. It's all a joke, and you just need to give it up and just die. Look at you. Clearly, you are on the wrong side of misfortune. Your health is gone. Your wealth is gone. Your loved ones are gone. Just give up. She is ascribing to Job a cause and effect that is not actually the case. We as the reader of the book of Job can see that Job's behavior is not the cause of his suffering. There is something larger, some spiritual warfare in play, other variables brought to bear, and yet she takes the simplistic assumption. You must have done wrong. And, and to flesh this out even more, he has this friend named Bildad. If you're thinking of naming a child, if you're pregnant, ladies, Bildad, just steer clear of that name. Not only is it hard to spell and it's kind of, you know, out of date, it just has a bad connotation after you read this part of Scripture. Job 8, 1 through 6, Bildad, Job's friend, does the right thing at first for a while, but then he lays into Job. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied, How long will you say such things? Job is in the middle of confessing just how he feels to God and to Bildad. And, and basically, as a friend, he shows us what not to do. He says, hey, quit it. Quit being so honest, Job. Your words are a blustering wind, Job. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? He's asking rhetorical questions to his friend, Job. When your children sinned against him, now he's making the assumption, look, your kids died in an accident. That obviously proves they were sinning against God. When your children sinned against him, God, he gave them over to the penalty of sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Ouch. Have you ever been on the wrong end of this type of friendship, this type of well-intentioned, foolish advice. I remember when I was an undergraduate student, my freshman year, I was living with the RA on campus at a state school, which is never very fun to live with the RA. You know, that's the guy who enforces all the rules. But this RA led a Bible study, and I found myself enveloped in this community of, of young men, and we're talking about scripture, and I'm growing in my faith. And there was this guy named Sean who lived next door in the dorm right next door, the room right next door. And Sean had all these questions. He was a skeptic. And we, we kept talking and engaging with Sean. And eventually, Sean came to find enough intellectual satisfaction in the answers that he found to the questions he had about the Christian faith that he put his faith in Christ. He accepted Christ as his forgiving, loving Savior. And we celebrated that. A week later, Sean was out at a house party, and he contracted meningitis, a very deadly virus, a disease. 
that killed John within 24 hours. I remember being at the hospital. I was one of the few friends that got word in time, and I was at the hospital, and I remember seeing him just as he had passed. And I remember just being stunned as a 19-year-old kid. My friend had just died in the course of 24 hours. They suspect from sharing a cup at a, at a house party. And I'll never forget an older person in the waiting room starting to comfort me, but then telling me that sometimes God brings severe judgment when we live a, a lifestyle that's not pleasing to him. He was making the correlation between the fact that my friend was at a house party and the fact that he was now dead due to the meningitis. My 19-year-old brain just went on fire at the time, and I remember thinking, that can't be true, and yet this person seems wise and sure of himself. My friends, you need to understand that as we suffer collectively, we will run into this type of advice. We will run into this moralistic cause and effect. This is obviously a result of sin, and Jesus ran into it too. There's a story in the Gospels where someone comes to Jesus and says, this blind man right here, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents that caused this blindness? See, in their mind, they were even being open to multiple ideas, but both ideas, you see, were sins of commission. Their assumption was that he's blind, he's disabled, so clearly somebody sinned, and that's a result of that sin. What did Jesus say? If you read the gospel accounts, Jesus said, you're, you're wrong in your thinking. You're asking the wrong question. Nobody sinned. You should be asking not who sinned to cause this, but rather how might God use this and how might God redeem all of this? Essentially, that's my paraphrase, but, but Jesus reframes the whole conversation and he says to us from those ancient scriptures, that, that story of of his interaction, he, he calls to us and he says, don't try to comfort people with pat answers. Don't assume that everyone who's hurting is hurting because they have it coming to them. Don't be a bildad. Don't be like Job's wife. So the first thing to keep in mind on how not to comfort people in pain is don't make the assumption that it's a sin of commission, something they've done that has cause them to be punished. This may not be punishment. The second thing is really the inverse. Don't assume your family and friends who are suffering, don't assume that their suffering is a punishment for sins of omission. And you'll see in Job 22, 1 through 11, we have another friend that jumps in. His name is Eliphaz. Also, don't name your kid Eliphaz. That would be a terrible spelling nightmare for, you know, a four or five or six-year-old. And he, he doesn't get it right either. You know, when you go for those biblical names, really try to aim for people who've got it right more than wrong. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, can a man be a benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? He's asking these rhetorical questions to build his case. It's kind of like, an episode of Boston Legal here. He's a lawyer on trial. He's, he's not comforting in a way that any of us would want to be comforted by a friend. He's laying this big, heady doctrinal case against his friend, Job. Is it for your piety 
that he rebukes you and brings charges against you. So he's kind of agreeing with Bildad here. He says, clearly you're getting punished. So it's not a result of you being good because God's good. And so he wouldn't punish anyone who's good. And it's black and white. It always works like that. So now follow that line of reasoning. But I'm going to give a little nuance to it. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you? Surely not. Is not your wickedness great, Job? You can just kind of see like the attorney in him just saying, admit it, your wickedness is great, Job. And we know, because at the beginning of the book of Job, it says Job's like the best guy there is. But his friend, who should know him better than anybody, is so convinced. Job's just got a big secret sin, and that's his problem. Now, some of us, maybe that is our problem today. And don't let ourselves off the hook for that. If, if we're actively rebelling against God and what he wants for our lives, and we're experiencing some natural cause and effect for that, that may not be God's punishment, but we might be just pushing against the law of sowing and reaping. Investing in here will produce a type of fruit. Everything we plant in life will produce some type of fruit. Some fruit is not as good as others, but, but that's not what the book of Job is about. The book of Job is pushing back on this cause and effect, simplistic mentality. Is not your wickedness great, Job? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. Now, this is ironic because Job actually helped a ton of people. That's what made him so obedient and faithful. He was constantly caring for the needy. But now this guy's laying into him and he's saying, you gave no water to the weary. This is hyperbole because he knows Job gave some, but he's saying, given how much you could have given, you didn't give enough. And though you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless, he's saying you didn't do enough. You didn't go to church enough. You didn't give enough money. You didn't volunteer enough. You didn't make enough time for people who needed your time. You weren't magnanimous and generous and kind and forgiving enough. You weren't good enough, Job. This is why snares are all around you. He's sure of himself. This is what not to do. Why sudden peril terrifies you, why it's so dark you cannot see. As a side note, don't get poetic about someone's misery. I mean, Eliphaz, what the heck, you know? Granted, Job is a, a dialogue, poetic form of genre, but I mean, he's really like making lyrics out of this guy's personal nightmare. Why sudden peril terrifies you, why it's so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. This is the second thing not to do. Don't assume that people are being punished for things that they've left undone just because that sometimes happens does not mean it always happens. Don't make that assumption. And if that assumption has been made against you, towards you, when you have been suffering, and it's been made by the church, let me as an ambassador and representative of the church that represents Jesus Christ just say, I'm sorry for that. And God was with you, even when your friends or someone from the church or someone you trusted made that foolish, untrue assumption. Thirdly, don't mistake torture and testing, 
punishment and purification. You know, one of the best scriptures that I've committed to memory comes out of a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a church in the, the early movement of Christianity, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. And in the early part of his letter, he had this to say, in all this, you greatly rejoice. All what? Well, he's writing to people who are going through immense suffering, suffering as great as the suffering that we're facing right now in 2020 with COVID-19 or greater. And he's saying, in all this, all your problems, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I love that line because it's so encompassing. And we can, we can hear that and let it wash over us today. You may be going through grief and trials of all kinds. That includes everything. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see the metaphor that Peter is using? He is pulling on the common knowledge that the way we purify gold, the most precious material substance of the ancient world and of the modern world, the, the way that we make that pure and worthy and, and expensive is we, we refine it through extreme heat, through fire. Is it painful for the gold? I imagine it would be. As the impurities bubble up to the surface and, and, and the expert smith skims off the impurities and the gold becomes all it is meant and could be. And Peter's saying, don't you understand? Yes, God allows suffering in this world. No, he doesn't delight in it. Any more than the smith delights in, in fire. He's not a pyromaniac. He just wants to purify the gold. He's not going to waste this extreme heat. Even if God didn't cause the heat, he will use it to purify us. Now, if you go through life and if you go through the next few weeks and months of uncertainty and unknown with coronavirus, assuming that God is out to torture you and that God is out to punish you, you will not have the reserves that you will need to face each new day. You will live under this burden of false belief. This, this deep shadow will just overtake you and you will end up in a place of despair. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for us, Mercy Road. But if you biblically can believe by faith and through logic that the God who created all things is good and that he is actually testing Job here for Job's benefit, that he is actually purifying and not punishing, that God is not into torture, he's into growing up men and women and children into maturity and he'll not waste any of the heat to do that, then we can respond to God with trust, even when we don't know how it's all going to turn out. Lastly, just a bit of practical advice. How not to comfort people in pain? How do you not comfort people in pain? Don't try to explain before you intercede. Don't try to explain before you intercede. I think a lot of really good, well-intended people reach out to others in pain and they fall into the Bildad and the Eliphaz and Job's wife 
the same trap that they fell into. And they don't do it because they have malicious intent. They do it because we, because I've done this too, open our mouth and we try to fix it and explain it before we go to God in intercession. You've heard me say this before, Mercy Road, but it's such a practical tool. Lord, you have my lips. Before you call someone today, and I, I recommend you call at least five people today who you care about. Before you check in and say, how are you doing really? What would it look like before you even dial that number? To say, Lord, you have my lips. And what would it look like to just write out a short prayer for this person? Lord, would you just purify my motives and intent? I don't know why they're suffering in the way that they are. I don't know where this coronavirus came from. It's, it's mysterious. It hurts. It's hard. And now would you put me in the right frame of mind to just lean in? You've heard of the term mansplaining in, in the feminist movement. Th this is not a good term. This is this idea that, that some men, surely none at Mercy Road, right? But so, some men have a tendency to just kind of tell women, this is how it is by virtue of their gender perspective. And, and women will say, that's mansplaining it to me, acting as if I, I wouldn't understand. Th there is kind of a similar principle at work here that is operating in Job's friend. I suppose you could call it friendsplaining. Mercy Road, don't friendsplain people suffering to them. Don't be quick to just say, this is why you're hurting. If you do the next five things that I've prescribed for you, obviously it'll be fixed. And, and furthermore, you're suffering because you did the five things wrong that I've listed out alph alphabetically, and you should admit those to God. Maybe some of that's true, but what if some of it's not? And what if, as we will talk more in depth next week about what we really need, what all of us really need when we're in pain, when we're afraid, when we're hurting, is a friend who really cares and cares enough just to be with us, to listen, to love, to encourage, and ultimately to intercede on our behalf in the presence of God. Friends, this is how not <laughs> to comfort people. We don't assume that people are suffering because of sins of commission or omission. We don't jump to that assumption right away. We don't mistake God's torture with God's testing, God's punishment with God's purification. We see God for who God is. He, he wants what is best for us, and he'll use even the hard things to purify our faith, to grow us up into spiritual maturity, and I pray that that's true for you in this season. And we don't try to explain before we intercede. Friends, uh, as we continue in this digital gathering new rhythm and journey, I want to suggest that we are in a good financial place right now. We're a debt-free church, and we don't have a physical offering. So if you write out a check and slam it against your computer screen, that's not going to work if you're a low-tech person. We can give online. We have text to give. And I would ask that you would prayerfully have a conversation with God and uh, anyone else who is in charge of your finances alongside with you, your spouse, uh, about how much you would like to support Mercy Road. Know this, the board met and we have decided that all donations to Mercy Road Church for the next three months, starting this Sunday, 
will be tithed on. We'll take 10% of all those donations and we will put those in a special COVID-19 relief fund. And we have a subcommittee established from our board that will prayerfully discern how the money will be distributed. And so as you help us pay our bills and continue to keep ministry going, you're actually helping us collectively care for those who are hardest hit, both in our community and outside of our community. So we thank you for your generosity and your consistency in giving. But we also just want to want to be real that some of you, some of us, have, have lost jobs. We're financially really hurting, and we want to be here for you in this season. And we see you, and we love you, and we care for you. Don't hesitate to reach out for prayer. Speaking of prayer, tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., we will gather for prayer digitally, and we will put a Zoom video conferencing link on our Facebook page, and we'll shoot a, a brief all-church email out. We can have up to 100 per participants on that. And so feel free to click that link at 6.30 if you'd like to have a, a big, messy group prayer session where maybe we meet on site here on Monday night. We're going to do it digitally. Uh, we also are experimenting with new live streaming on YouTube. And so stay tuned for new instructions on how to stream the message in coming Sundays. Lastly, we do have a weekly wire update that we've created this past week and every friday we will be sending out a newsletter that we call mercy roads weekly wire it will have three purposes to inform you to keep you up to date to encourage you there'll be devotionals and video uh, biblical lessons and different articles and to equip you there will be tools and next steps and resources we're committed to that as a staff and we're committed to you thank you for being a part of this family of faith know that we love you, care for you, and we're praying for you. I'm going to close in prayer. Ari is going to come up, lead us in a final song and a benediction. Father God, help us to pay attention to Job. Even when it feels like you have disappeared, remind us you have not. Lord, would you show us how to not jump to assumptions, not jump to explanations, but instead to love people like you love like your son modeled for us. Would you form us, God, into the type of family that can weather this storm well? Would you draw all people to the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, in whose name I pray, amen.